Uh, but you may, you may not have heard of this um, thing, but uh, I found out this week that there is such a thing, it's a thing called sign spotting, sort of like train spotting, except uh, you, you sort of keep your eye out for weird and crazy signs, road signs and other signs around the world that sort of don't make sense. And there's this online community that keep look out for these bizarre or wrong or funny signs and they sort of post them up. And, uh, it's the sort of thing like, like this. Uh, and you can, you can see that's obviously going to lead someone astray. Some are just plain wrong, right? This is just plain wrong. Uh, same with this one. This uh, is probably not a good sign to follow if you can pick it up there. Uh, uh, some are just confusing. You kind of think, uh, what, what was someone thinking, you know, uh, the, the second person to put it up, you know, <laughs> didn't, they, didn't they think? Uh, these, you know, there, there are some that just don't, don't make sense at all. <laughs> and, you know, just utterly confusing. I don't know if you saw this sign, if you'd know what to do at all. You just sort of implode because you have no options of where to go. Uh, this guy, oh yes, yeah, some are just bizarre. You think, I have no idea uh, what scenario in which that sign... Well, it's probably near an airfield, I guess, this one. And uh, this fellow obviously didn't read the sign as he was going along. Uh, and some signs are just ripe for being tampered with. I don't know if you've... Um, <laughs> this, uh, this is a sign... Uh, uh, watch out for... that The crocodile isn't sort of original, OK? It's a sign, watch out for bumps in the road where you'll, if you're riding your bike, you'll get... Uh, and someone sort of taped in a crocodile there. Some signs are ripe for being tampered. Well... Okay, well, the thing about signs, right, the thing about signs uh, is they point to something greater than themselves, right? They point to something else. They're not, they're, you're not supposed to focus on the sign, uh, but what they point to. And when they can go wrong, you know, they can be deadly. I mean, imagine if this actually was a real sign. Uh, but, you know, the, the, when the signs go wrong, things can go... Well, friends, uh, we're starting this morning looking at John 2. And it's the first time after Jesus has called his disciples. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've looked through uh, the beginning chapter of John's Gospel. And last week, where John uh, called, uh, Jesus called his disciples, started to call his disciples. And here in John 2, he gets into action, right? We see Jesus in action and I don't know if you've picked it up, if you've been reading it through the week leading up, or if you, as we read it just now, if you picked up, just what um, a strange kind of story it is, right? Uh, on one level, uh, it's, it's a strange story to start with, don't you think? We've been introduced in chapter 1 to the biggest vision possible for who Jesus is, the, the Word of God who was with God, who was God. Uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Messiah, the promised King of God's people over God's kingdom. And so you get to the end of chapter 1 and your expectations are really high for this, for this one, this great supreme word, this Lamb of God. Your expectations are high. But then you get to chapter 2 and what's the first thing we see of Jesus? This really kind of ordinary intimate community family wedding uh, we heard the story as it was read out it i mean jesus does do something incredible here right so th there's no surprises there jesus does do something 
incredible. But, but even that, I think, is a little confusing. It is, it's incredible. It's a miracle, and uh, it's, it's an amazing thing Jesus does. But do you notice, as we read through, it's kind of it's small fry compared to some of Jesus' other miracles, isn't it? Raising the dead, feeding thousands. Uh, and it's not even all that public. Did you notice that as we read through? It's not, uh, it's not this great public display of his power. Uh, at the end of the whole story, it's, there's only a few people, the disciples and the servants, who actually kind of know what's going on and what's happened. It's not as if it's a great public display. And it, uh, added to that, as you read through John, so there's this thing going on where you think, yeah, it's a bit of a shock coming from chapter 1 into this ordinary, intimate little scene in a family wedding. But added on top of that, as you read through John, um, you notice how very carefully and <clears throat> meaningfully it's been written. Uh, it's a book, uh, unlike some others, it, this, is, this is a book that's meant to be read and reread and reread. It's, it's, uh, everything is, um, has a purpose for where it is. And while the other Gospels, the other Gospels are just chock-a-block full of miracles, right? Jesus' miracles all the way. John only records a really small ha handful of miracles that Jesus does. Well, what is going on here? John only records a few of these miracles. And so when we, when we see one, when we read one, it means something big is going on. Uh, which just sort of adds even more to the sense of, I guess, puzzlement over this particular miracle, changing a few jars of water into wine. Thankfully, we're not left guessing. John himself uh, gives us, I think, the reason uh, down in verse, uh, verse 11. Why, why is this small-scale, semi-private miracle, why is it right at the start of what John records about Jesus' life. You can read it there in verse 11. Verse 11 says, let me flick to it myself. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was uh, the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. John calls this this miracle, the first of Jesus' signs through which Jesus would reveal his... And it's crucial, I think, friends, to understand what's going on here. This isn't just some sort of bare display of Jesus' power. As, I mean, that is, it is that, uh, an incredible thing that happens, right? Uh, uh, the creator, the one who, through whom all things were made, <laughs> turns uh, water into wine, does something that only God can do. It is a display of his power, but John says it's, it's more than that. It's not just a story of, of, an, of some little thing that happened in someone's wedding. It is a sign. It's an important sign. It's, it, John puts it right at the start, and we're meant to pay attention to it. This phrase, the sign, uh, it comes up through John's Gospel. It comes up through John's Gospel as you read it, uh, and it, it comes at a number of different sort of Moments and Jesus' miracles are called these. Are called this side. It's so prominent that there's uh, one popular breakdown which will come up on the screen uh, that uh, I think has a lot going for it. Uh, there's some sort of things that might not fit in here, but essentially, 
there's, I think it's quite a helpful way of thinking about this book of John as a whole. Uh, it sees it basically taught, uh, falling into two parts. What you can see there on the left, uh, this book of signs, uh, and then that's up to chapter 12, and then from chapter 13 through to 20, what gets called the book of glory. They're not titles that the, the Gospel of John uses, but that's sort of an attempt to see what's going on here. These, these signs that are through particularly the first half of John's Gospel, they're meant to point towards the ultimate outworking uh, of Jesus' mission, what he came to do. They're meant to reveal his glory. And then you see in what gets called the Book of Glory, it shows us what those signs are all pointing to. Jesus' own death and resurrection, his glory, his, his glory, his death and resurrection that bring life to those who believe. Okay, uh, uh, that may sort of be helpful for you, uh, but uh, it's, I, I find it a helpful sort of overview to think about what's going on here and particularly to think, to, to get that when John says that this is a sign, it's, it's significant, it's important. <laughs> And we need to pay attention to what's going on. But we also need to be careful with how we read signs. We need to be careful we read them properly. It's possible to sort of read all sorts of wrong uh, meanings into stuff that we're not meant to. One I heard recently, um, take, you know, an example of this from the Old Testament. You might know the story of uh, uh, Joshua and the walls of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down as the song goes. Uh, this, this sort of over-reading of signs with, with, uh, that I heard recently says something like this, God knocked down the walls of Jericho and he wants you to knock down the walls in your life too. You, know, so you, you, you can see signs everywhere and it's just not what's intended by the text. It's not an accurate, faithful reading of it. Um, but thankfully, uh, so we've got to be careful, but we also need to hear John here. John tells us that this is a sign. And John helps us out, I think, really helpfully. We're going to get to the passage soon, but all of this is really, I think, helpful background to what's going on. John helps us out with his signs, what they're all about. Uh, right at the end of his Gospel, this is a really important verse, uh, and if you want to know basically what John's Gospel is all about, uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, are kind of the theme verse for the whole Gospel. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these particular signs that I've recorded, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes this sign down so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. God's promised king over his kingdom, the son of God, and that by believing in him we would have life in his name. So friends, as we just start looking at this, it's, uh, it's an introduction to this particular sign, but as we read on in John over the coming months, uh, we need to keep this in mind as well. We're not going to go far wrong if we ask, what does this sign show about who Jesus is, what his glory is, how does it reveal his glory as the Messiah, the Son of God? And how does it lead us to believe in him to, and to trust our lives to him as our king, uh, 
as our Messiah, as our promised one. Well, friends, that's all by way of, as I said, introduction to this particular and also the next, uh, the next sort of chunk of John's Gospel. But if, if you do have John 2 open, it'll help you. Also, there's an outline in the handout you would have got as you came in. Uh, but John 2, it zooms in on a really, as we said, a really intimate family scene. It's this wedding in a town called Cana. And we were told in verse 1 there that, uh, that Mary was there, not given her name, but we know that's who this is, Jesus' mother. Uh, Jesus' mother was at this wedding. Uh, it, perhaps it's the wedding of a close friend or someone in the family. Uh, it, it, it's likely that it's someone in the family because we know uh, that Jesus is invited along as well. Uh, and not only Jesus, but his new sort of gang of disciples who've started following him. Remember, it's only a few days ago that these disciples have started following Jesus. Uh, so it's, I think it's safe to assume that this wedding is a, a, a one of, uh, you know, a, maybe a close family wedding, something that not only Jesus was invited to, but these new disciples who were following him. But you can see there in verse 3, there's a problem, right? Uh, the wedding had run out of wine. Well, this may not seem a big deal to you. It wouldn't have been a big deal at my wedding. My wedding was lots of fun. Uh, it was a great day but we were young and dirt poor. Uh, and we had our reception at a theological college that uh, had a no alcohol rule. So we had a dry wedding, which didn't really any bother anyone, actually. My family don't really drink very much and no one was particularly fussed about it. Uh, but uh, this will just show you how classy we are. We did splash out on a few cases of Maison. You know what Maison is? Non-alcoholic wine that you get from Woolies, right? Uh, I've come from classy stock, I tell you. Now, if we'd run out of our fake wine, no one would have cared, okay? No one would have cared. Uh, I probably would have called my brother over and said, mate, can you run down to Woolies and pick up a few extra bottles of Maison? Problem solved, you know? <laughs> but things were slightly different at this wedding. Things were slightly different at this wedding. Uh, friends, to understand what's going on here, we need to see that in the first century, uh, wedding celebrations were big deals. They, they could run for up to a week, uh, they could run for up to a week. Uh, and wine was a crucial part of the whole thing. Wine was a crucial part. Uh, the financial responsibility for the whole thing lay with the groom. And the experts tell me uh, that there's some evidence that if a, a wedding ran out of supplies, things like wine, the groom could actually be sued by the bride's family. <laughs> um, so it's a big deal. Uh, and going on in the, all going on in the background here uh, is uh, something that perhaps we find hard to relate to, but it's the, the reality that this culture of this wedding uh, is a, an honour-shame culture, which is a very different sort of way of operating together than uh, in our society, which is much more individualistic. And uh, This honour-shame culture... Uh, our culture is much more individualist. We kind of find meaning in our own individual sort of fulfilment and choice. So if you get offended at me running out of Maison, I just think, get over it, you know. <laughs> like, uh, the, uh, but in these honour and shame cultures, it's a very different kind of thing. Uh, meaning and fulfilment is much more found in uh, your community. It's found sort of corporately, not individually. It's found... 
uh, and particularly in your network of family relationships. The big sin in our culture is not to be true to yourself, right? And the big sin in an in a honour-shame culture is to bring shame to your family, to bring shame to your family. So all of that, by way of saying, when Mary comes running up to Jesus uh, and says they've run out of wine, well, it is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's not entirely clear why Mary says this to Jesus. Uh, It's probable at this point, uh, it's probable that she is a widow at this point. Joseph, uh, her husband, doesn't appear in the gospel stories when Jesus is an adult. So there's some thought that she is a sort of a widow at this point and she's going to Jesus as the, the, the head of the household in a way. Um, so it may be that Mary uh, simply turns to her adult son who has kind of taken Joseph's place and uh, she might just be expressing her sort of concern. Uh, she might be expecting him to fix it. But whatever's behind it, this mother comes to her son with a major problem something that would bring shame and dishonour to the family. Uh, Maybe she was hoping he'd come up with a solution or maybe she's just expressing her panic. But either way, she tells Jesus, and up to this point, you you can kind of understand this story, right? It's kind of relatable, uh, uh, a a mum. And it seems like Mary has some responsibility uh, in this wedding, Uh, the way she talks to the servants. Uh, A mum... Going to her son and saying, "What's you know? Can they've run out of wine? What are we going to do?" But from here on, all of that is kind of understandable. From here on, things just get weird, right? From verse four on, Jesus' reply to his mother is just odd, right? Um, the translation we had read out read "dear woman." Up on the screen, it was just "woman." It's a bit of a hard word to sort of get across. It's not quite as warm as dear woman. Uh, it's, it's not a rude word, but it's not anywhere near as warm and sort of familiar as you'd expect a mother uh, to his son in this culture. Uh, but that's not the most weird part of this. What does Jesus go on to say? Uh, he says in uh, verse 4 there, he says, Woman, Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Some translations will put it, my time has not yet come. The the new NIV has helpfully said, my hour has not yet come. This is a very significant... What's going on here? It's really significant, actually. All through John's Gospel, there's this phrase, the hour. Jesus' hour. It's really... It's incredibly significant... And all the way through, it means the hour of his death. The hour of his death. The whole gospel is driving towards Jesus' hour, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And Jesus says, it's a coming hour. It's coming. uh, And everything is working towards that. If you remember the, the breakdown of the whole gospel that we looked at, those sort of two halves, right in the middle of that, at the start of chapter 13, where we go from this book of signs to the book of glory, if you want to use those terms, right? And chapter 13, right in the middle there, right at the start, there's this shift. And you can uh, flick to it if you want or just make a note. Or, uh, it says this right at the start of chapter 13. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So there's this... Did I put that in there, Jonah? Uh, No. Uh, There's this thing in chapter... Okay, so there's this focus in in chapter 13, verse 1. There's this total shift. Up to this point, the hour has not yet come, has not yet come. uh, Chapter 13, Jesus knew his hour had come. His hour had come and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So you've got this situation. Mary tells Jesus they've run out of wine and Jesus turns to her and says, woman, it's not time for me to die yet. You kind of think, what's, it's a bit of an odd answer, isn't it? And I imagine it would take Mary by surprise a little bit. It's bizarre. There's something about this wedding that means that this hour is on Jesus' mind. And we're going to come back to that in a, in a little while. We'll come back to that at the end as we draw things together. So sort of hold on to that thought. But Jesus, as, as we hear, Jesus, his interaction with uh, this, his mother, uh, this is kind of a sign of, of who he is, right? There's something going on for Jesus that's deeper than his family identity. This isn't just a mother and her son at a family wedding. Uh, John's already told us, as we saw earlier, he's already told us the big picture of who Jesus is. The big picture, the word of God, God himself come into his world the Messiah, the, the, who would also be the Lamb, who would die for the sins of the world. So we have here not just a mother and her son, we have the Messiah, uh, a, a woman and her Messiah. Not just a mother and son, a woman and her Messiah. It must, it's worth pausing though, isn't it, and just thinking, it must have been so hard for Mary, right, at this point. What a, what a hard transition to make. But we do get, I think, a hint that she does make it. <laughs> In this story, she does make this transition uh, in a way, or starts to in verse 5 there. It's hard to know what Mary expects when she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, But she clearly trusts Jesus, not just as her son, but as someone with a deeper authority to do something unexpected, See, and and do you see what else is going on here? Jesus hasn't actually said he'd do anything. He hasn't said he would do anything. Um, But Mary hopes, Mary hopes and expects that he will. He will act. Uh, I I think what's going on here, her, her response here isn't the response of a kind of overbearing mother who's forcing her son's hand to do what she wants. Uh, it is, I think, an expression of her faith in Jesus, knowing that even before he is her son, he's someone so much bigger. Obviously, she, she doesn't have all the details, but that's there. And then in verse 6, uh, so there's this, this interaction between Jesus and his mum. And then if you read on in verse 6, uh, uh, things just you know, keep getting weird about this story. There's six stone water jars this is a huge amount, I'm told. Uh, one, someone worked it out to be about 900 bottles of wine. Uh, 900 bottles of wine, which is a phenomenal amount, not just enough to make do, but an overwhelming abundance of wine, much more than they'd ever need. Uh, 
And did you notice as you read through the type of jar that's used? It says that these jars were used for ceremonial washing. Uh, this uh, the ceremonial washing of the Jewish people, this, this water in these jars would have been used. And the way Jesus and John specifically records that they were that this type of jar is always important. When John gives little details like this, it's important. Um, but it ties into a theme that it's going to run through the next few chapters of John. This theme of a new thing, a new overwhelming, abundant thing that's going to fulfil and replace the old. A new thing. The ceremonies and rituals that governed life for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, not sort of disregarded and abolished, but fulfilled. Fulfilled with what they were always pointing towards. And we'll, we'll hear more about that next week, particularly but then you read on in verse 7, Jesus tells the servants to fill these jars with water. He doesn't say any words. Do you notice that? He doesn't sort of put his hand over them or pray or anything like that. He just says, fill them. He doesn't say, water, turn to wine. And he Just uh, purely with his own power, the power of the one who made all things, through whom all things were made, uh, he changes all that water into wine. And can you imagine the servants, right? They simply fill the jars with water. And then in verse 8, Jesus tells them to take the, some wine to the master of the banquet, kind of like the, the head honcho, the MC, who's running the show. Um, but we're not told that the servants tried any of this themselves. Uh, I, imagine, I imagine as they, sort of, they take the water out and take it to the MC, I, 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 I imagine they're terrified, actually taking, you know, there's run out of wine and they're taking what they presume, I guess, to be water to the MC. Uh, wouldn't he be furious at these servants bringing him water and saying, here is the next drink for the meal? But Mary had told them to do whatever Jesus said. Didn't matter how stupid it seems. So they draw some and they take it to the master of the banquet. And what a surprise. Uh, the master of the banquet is shocked, but not with anger. He's shocked with delight, right? He calls over the bridegroom, who you remember is responsible for all the supplies in these weddings. Uh, he praises him in verse 10. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after them, uh, after the guests have had too much to drink, right? Do you get the idea? This is the sort of practice of the day. You, you use all the best wine first and then the cheap plonk when everyone's just a little bit tipsy and can't appreciate it. But the, bride, the, uh, the master of ceremonies says, but you have saved the best till now. You have saved the best till now. Till now. Jesus brings this new, unexpected, overwhelming abundance to this little wedding feast that's in danger of a shameful ending. He takes away their shame and replaces it with joy. He takes away their shame and replaces it with joy. It's an incredible story, friends. I just want to finish, as we wrap things up, thinking a little bit about these signs, what, what the signs are a bit more, and how we can follow the sign. We can follow the sign and see what it's pointing towards. And 
I just want to, the first thing that I think we need to reflect on a little bit more, and I mentioned as we worked through, is this whole concept of the hour, what the hour is. Why does this wedding remind Jesus of his hour? Why does, why does it remind him of this hour that is coming? There is something, uh, something I think is deeply significant going on here, and while we have to be careful as we mentioned, not to overread signs. I think this is something intended by John, and I think the reason he records Jesus talking about his hour is really significant. Jesus was soaked in the Old Testament. And all through the Old Testament, there's this strand that runs through the Old Testament in which God calls himself the bridegroom of his people. The bridegroom of his people. God doesn't just want a relationship with his people like a king to, to his people, but that, there is a reality, of course, but this, there's this picture of a deeper, more intimate relationship, this picture of a bridegroom with his bride. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 54, verses 4 and 5 says this, and if not, just listen, this incredible... Um, image of God as a bridegroom. Isaiah 54 verse 4 says, Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. For the Lord your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Another really... Um, a clear place where this is, uh, if, again, if you're taking notes, a, a book called Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14, written to a people who have rejected God. The Lord says, Return, faithless people, for I am your husband. Return, faithless people, for I am your husband. There's this strain that goes through the Old Testament of God as the husband of his people, the relationship is that our earthly marriages are sort of all pointing towards uh, this, this deep and true intimacy between God and his people uh, that is broken by the people's faithlessness but that God desires to re-establish. And when you get to the New Testament, something incredible happens. If you just flick over the page in John, actually probably on the same page in your Bible, if you've got a church Bible, uh, chapter 3 Verse 29 to 30, we get this story of John the Baptist, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. Uh, so we won't go into the details now, but there you get this incredible thing that happens right here in John, where John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom who has come to take his bride. The bridegroom who has come to take his bride. And, the bride, and then, and we mentioned this a few weeks ago, if you remember, um, in one of uh, our topical sermons, then uh, at the, right at the end of the Bible story in Revelation, the end of history is pictured as, what is it? A wedding feast. It's pictured as a wedding feast. It's Jesus' wedding day. The people of God dressed as a bride for her husband, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And at this wedding in Cana, Jesus looks ahead to his hour, 
and I think we're meant to read, to his own wedding, the, 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 the great ultimate wedding that all our weddings, this, this little wedding in Cana, points towards. And, but what's it got to do with his hour? We, we said before the hour is when Jesus dies, right? The hour is when Jesus dies. Well, friends, do you see what's going on when this bridegroom comes to take his bride, his people, to have that kind of close, intimate relationship with them in which they are fully known and fully loved? Do you see what's going on? Jesus knows that to marry his bride, he has to go through his hour. He has to go through his hour. How can faithless people return to the Lord? How can Jesus marry his bride? his church, only through washing them clean. Not with the kind of water of the Jewish ceremonies, but with his own blood. He had to die. You remember John 13, verse 1, when his hour finally came, Jesus knew it had come. And John writes, having loved his own who were in the world, his bride who had come to claim and take and marry He loved them to the end. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Well, friends, Jesus brought joy to this wedding. But because he went through this hour, because at the cross he died to bring faithless people like you and I, to bring faithless people to be brought back into this kind of relationship with God, not a distant relationship, but the deep intimacy of the perfect marriage, fully known, fully loved. Because of that, he he brought joy to this wedding, but he brings deep, eternal, abundant joy to his people, to his bride. The unexpected abundance of this wedding at Cana is just, again, a sign pointing to the great abundance at the wedding feast of the Lamb. There are different kinds of joy, aren't there? Some joy, it just seems weak and flimsy. I don't know if you've kind of experienced that or seen it. We probably all have uh, a kind of flimsy joy that can't handle the brokenness of the world, you know, that comes and goes. But the joy that Jesus brings is a different kind of joy altogether, isn't it? Um, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings stories, there's a great sort of moment. I've mentioned it a few times. I'm obviously a fan. Uh, but there's a great moment in the Lord of the Rings where uh, Gandalf and Pippin are together. And uh, they're sort of uh, facing an insurmountable enemy. And Gandalf stands with Pippin at his side uh, in the face of this fierce enemy. And uh, a series of sort of things happen. And Gandalf lets out this rich laugh, free laugh. And Pippin sort of looks at him and gazes in wonder. Uh, and and um, Tolkien writes, In the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. <laughs> Isn't that great? Do you see what's going on there? Jesus is about joy, friends. Christmas is about joy. Christmas is about celebration. But it is a joy that comes through the hour, 
It's a joy that comes through the cross, which means we will never fully enter that joy unless we recognize and acknowledge our own sin, our own, unless we see the reason for the hour, our own rejection of God. That meant that Jesus had to come and face his hour to claim his bride. And once we do that, friends, once you see your own rejection of God fully and at the same time his relentless pursuit of you, his deep love for you, that won't give you a kind of shallow joy that will come and go and doesn't have any kind of depth to it. It can't cope with the reality of sin and death and brokenness. That'll give you a deep joy that knows Jesus' hour, what he went through to win you as one of his people, his people, his bride. That will be a joy that no hardship can shake, no lines of care and sorrow that Pippin saw in Gandalf's face. No lines of care and sorrow will ever be able to take away. It'll be a joy that means you'll do whatever he says, like the servants, you'll do whatever he says, even if you can't see how it will help you. It'll be a joy that tastes and rests in the new, unexpected, overwhelming abundance that he brings and that he promises to his people who he loved to the end. What a great hope that is, friends. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this sign that points to your glory and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Father, please now, we pray, you will help us to, to see the reason why Jesus had to go through his hour, uh, to see our own part in that, our own rejection of you, to repent of it, to turn away from it, to be filled with sorrow for it, but filled with joy at your great grace and love in at the way that you keep pursuing us, in the way that you went through, Lord Jesus, you went through your hour, the pain and agony of the cross for us, for your bride, the church. Father, the first disciples saw this sign uh, that showed them something of the glory of Jesus and they put their faith in him. Father, today, maybe for the hundredth time, for some maybe even for the first time, may we see this glory of Jesus and again, or maybe for the first time, put our trust, put our faith in him as the Son of God, the Messiah the Lamb of, the God, of, of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.